Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. So I'm going to begin with the beginning of this series. A couple weeks ago when we started this series, Closer Than You Think, I started in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and I referenced John Lennox. He's a mathematician at Oxford University. If you've never heard John Lennox talk, I mean, put on your thinking cap. This man is brilliant. I think he's a genius. And he is refuting a very common atheistic thought that Stephen Hawking made very prevalent in 2010 with the release of his book, where he says, Stephen Hawking says, and a lot of atheists have kind of you know, expressed the same thought, if you can observe a physical law in our universe, if you can observe the properties of a natural law like gravity, he uses the example of gravity, you are witnessing, if you're able to see the components, the properties of a, a physical law, you are observing the source of creation. One of the laws, one of the sources of creation itself that explains the Big Bang. And a lot of atheists just kind of went with this. Well, well, there, that explains the Big Bang. It's just natural laws that we see today were at work. And John Lennox is like, are you kidding me? That makes no sense. So let's, well, this is a two-minute video. Let's watch John Lennox speaking to, he's at a longer lecture, but this is two minutes I pulled out of it. This is a setup to something that's relevant actually in the Gospel of Mark, believe it or not. Let's watch John Lennox. What he's saying is that physical laws aren't creative they're descriptive. And along comes a, a leader in Jesus' day who asks a very similar question. He's not asking a question about physical nature. He's asking a question that we all ask, we all care about. What's the one law is the way the Pharisee worded it. Jesus, you seem smart. You're gathering crowds all around you. What's the one rule? What's the one law that I can observe that will ensure me life, eternal life? Life forever. And Jesus is essentially having to give the same kind of answer. The laws of Moses, the rules that we followed as ancient Israel, they don't create life. They describe where you are in life. They're not creative. You can't do something ritualistically or show up at church at a certain time or do certain observations on Tuesdays or Thursdays or if you pray a certain kind of Amount of times are you in ancient Israel, if they planted their crops on Tuesdays the right way or they treated their servants the way they should. If the daughter wanted to marry a Phoenician or all the ancient laws, of, there's not one law that actually gives you life, Jesus explains. In fact, he answers this question, Jesus, what's the one law? What's the one rule that I can observe where I please God enough that he gives me eternal life, Jesus answers with the non-law law of Moses, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. He says to the Pharisee, okay, you want the one thing, you want one thing to do to ensure life, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then Jesus, we said a couple weeks ago, he adds to the script. He just adds do you love your neighbor as yourself? Observe these two laws, and Jesus describes them as one, which is really interesting. 
you do these two things, really walk them out, live out these two as one, you'll have life forever. The Pharisee, this religious leader who's trying to find fault with Jesus, is actually more impressed. And in this case, the Pharisee says, wow, Jesus, this is in Mark 12, you've answered wisely. I can't refute this. I can't argue with this. I think you're right. And Jesus says as a response in, in Mark 12, 34, his response to the Pharisee's response to him and how you have life, Jesus says, ah, you, you're agreeing with the value of my kingdom. You're agreeing with what I say provides life. You're not far. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now let's back up to the beginning of Mark. We're going to stay in Mark for just another minute here, a couple minutes. The gospel of Mark, we, we, we are given the gospel of Mark today because Peter, probably from a prison cell, we don't know exactly where he was in Rome. We think we, he was jailed when he dictated his eyewitness account and experience with Jesus to his traveling companion, Mark, John Mark. So Mark records all the details of Peter's own experience, and we have that today as the gospel of Mark. And the prevailing, driving passion of the gospel of Mark is Jesus declaring the time has come. The worlds have been separated. Eden was supposed to be where humans and God lived together and interacted together and actually created together. And you say, humans aren't supposed to create. Absolutely, we were made in the image of the creator. We actually have the ability to co-create, procreate other image bearers of God. We were to interact with God in this space where we live and dwell together. That is what Eden was. Eden wasn't a place where God would just show up randomly once in a while up on a mountaintop. Hello, my people. Eden was a place where we were in community with God. And Jesus arrives and Mark tells us that Peter's driving understanding of what Jesus' message was, the time has come. The two worlds have been separated, the two realms, the two spaces. Humans were vanquished out of Eden. I have come to begin the movement of these two spaces back together. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This remarkable news, which is what the word gospel means, this remarkable telling of truth and life that will transform us and will move us back to the good that we crave. And then we go just a little bit further in Mark chapter 1. And we see this driving passion actually spelled out in, in detailed by Jesus. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming this good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. He uses this word repent that doesn't mean become more religious or try to do things better. That's not what repent means. Repent means change course, reverse course, reverse your direction. It's, it's like a 180 idea, like you're going that way. I'm calling you. Stop. Let go of your control. Let go of trying to control your own life, solve your own problems, being your own God, surrender, come this way, is what Jesus says when he says repent. Okay, so 
that's where we've been in this series. Today, I just want to say that I see people. I mean, I wrote in my notes every day. I don't know if I can say every single day of the year, but so many times throughout the week, I see people, I feel it in people. In talking to people, I hear this described, this sense of distance with God. Brad, I want to believe. I want to know that God is close. I want to know that God is at work. I want to believe these stories. There's something about the words of Jesus that resonate in me. There's something real and powerful about them. But I just, it seems like, you know, some version of this comes my way. I mean, sometimes it's like in a week, it's like every day. I'll hear people, I, I want closeness with God, but I just feel he's distant. A lot of people see the world as if God is distant from our world. Like if God would just show up, things would be better. Where is he? We crave life. This is, this is another way of saying we want good. We want the good of Eden. There's not a human being that doesn't see a picture of what we would call paradise. Bali or Tahiti or you just pick your own. Pick your a national park or some kind of act of compassion. A human treating another human with just sacrificial love. We see these images and we just gravitate everywhere. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what religion. It doesn't matter your background, your socioeconomic status. Every human sees these things and we think paradise. That's the way the world. I want, I want to sit on that beach with that nice little drink and the palm trees. And there's something about paradise that, that's symbolic to us. Like we were made for this. We want that to be our retirement. There's something in that. I wish that could be forever. And while we're on that beach, let's treat each other with love and let's, let's sacrifice for each other. This is the idea of paradise, and there's something in our DNA that knows that's what we were made for. So why is the world so screwed up? If God wanted it to be good and we crave good, you know what's interesting? I've observed this, and I'm sure you have too. You've probably observed this. And as a pastor, I'm just keenly attuned to this uh, as it's just a state of our broken humanity. When people are doing well, and I'm just generalizing here, but when people are doing well, when people, when jobs are going pretty well, careers advancing, there's no real toxicity of other people in life at the moment, relationships are pretty good, finances are stable, there's something in us that kind of sets God aside. Have you ever done this? Maybe you're doing it right now. Like, Life's pretty okay, and yeah, God is the source of it, but I don't really need him. I'm not in an emergency right now, and we sort of, we just, we'll get back to God later when we need him. You know what I'm talking about? You know, we just, we have that kind of, ah, oh, life's okay right now. God, you know, I'll think of you kind of randomly once in a while, and maybe I'll offer you a thanks. And then on the contrary... When life is disturbing, when there is stress at work, when we're struggling, we see the world is messed up, life is hard in some way, we often, it's our nature to distance ourselves from God. If God isn't acutely addressing my crisis right now in the moment, if he's not fixing my hurt right now today, well, then I need to put my power and control and energy into solving this problem, and I'll just get back to God later. We just kind of set God to the side. We don't need God when, it, when life is good. 
and we don't pursue God when life is challenging. My mom has made this statement for years. She's said this since I was young. She'll see the state of humanity or she'll see a person treat another person a certain way or decisions that we people can make sometimes. And my mom will say, poor God. Like, poor God. What in the world? Like, it sucks to be God. I mean, that's a weird statement, you know, but because it doesn't, of course. But, man, God just, it's like he creates us and then we just create havoc. So I want us to look at this for the next, the, the, the time we have left here. What's going on? How do we describe the state of our world? I mean, if he wants good and we want good, why isn't life good? It seems like it's just broken. We see glimpses of Eden. We do. When you see a national park, when you see that beach in paradise, or you see someone at work treat someone kindly, we see these glimpses of Eden. We see them in ourselves from time to time, the, the, the image of God that we were to be, but we're broken versions of that. Our world is a broken version, and you are a broken, Scripture tells us, you are a broken version of who God made you to be. And there's nothing we can do to repair ourselves. We're trying, we're trying, we're trying to make ourselves better and our lives better, and we're trying to think more positively about our future. Nothing changed. We have to be changed and transformed from the inside out. We have to. We're never going to be settled in our soul until we become the image bearer of God again. That's what we're really craving. All right, so I'm going to go back to the beginning, Genesis 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And by the way, that has been taught incorrectly through much of church history, the idea that God created earth where people will live and the heavens where God will live. The Hebrew word heavens here means the sky and the skies, the atmosphere, and the birds in the sky, the lights in the sky, and the earth means the dirt, the land. And then what follows is a description of this space, the skies and the earth. This is God's home. He's describing Eden being heaven, and that we are going to live in heaven with him. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. It's interesting. Archaeologists today think they know the region of Eden where Eden would have been in its today and its, you know, perfect state if we hadn't broken the world because of these rivers. It's an interesting study. If you want to hear about that, I kind of geek out on that. So the trees are good. Not only is all of creation in chapter 1 good, these trees are good. They're pleasing to the sight, just like in Genesis 1, but it doesn't stay that way. Now the Lord God put the man and put him in the garden, the Garden of Eden, to work it and take care of it. This is part of the imaging responsibility of humans and the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it you will certainly die and if you think and I used to struggle with this early in my faith God's just playing with us why put that tree there why put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there that's just he's like tempting us well, what we learn in life is that in life's decisions and in our finances and our relationships, there are two trees always. 
There's the way of God and his control, the center of God's love. And then there's this other way where we can be in control. You can be in control. Otherwise, we would have been programmed robots. This tree's existence is the idea. It's the essence of, of free choice, free will. So here's the heads up. The tragedy of human history is possible. We have the ability, God's saying, to break everything and to introduce death to Eden. To introduce struggle and deception and bullying and disease and hurt and loss, depression. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? I mean, in Genesis 2, we have manipulation. This is, this is a whisper, manipulative whisper. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, that's not what God said, that you can't eat from any tree in the garden. The woman's correcting the serpent. We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The, the core of this manipulation, by the way, um, is that we were already made like God. This idea that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. We already were. We were made in the image of God. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from, from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, which she already had, the only thing missing was the intimate awareness of evil, a life form or existence that could be contrary to God. Humans didn't understand that. We didn't know that. So she believed the lie. So she took it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the, introdu the introduction of human shame, which we all know and have experienced. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, because again, this is God's space and human space together. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden, like you're going to hide from God. And yet you and I still try to do this today sometimes. We think this is laughable. Like seriously, what are they hiding behind rocks or trees? They're hiding from God. And yet this is so deep in humans. We try to hide from one another. We try to hide from God. Where are you, God called? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid beginning of human hiding, running and hiding. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman. This is classic. I mean, it starts in the beginning of humanity. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord goes to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me. I mean, it's like finger pointing. It's just flying here. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, his wife Eve, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Knowing. 
this existence, this idea of that something could choose to be contrary to God. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Because that would be this contradiction of separation from God, yet life. So the Lord God vanquished him, I'm sorry, banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, meaning humankind out, this is fascinating. And again, archaeologists believe they know the general area on the Iraqi, Iranian-Iraqi border where this probably occurred. After God drove humans out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So Eden still exists. But we broke this dimension somehow and we were separated from God's presence and we were left in this ghostly shadowy version of earth in its broken state. This is what scripture calls sin, selfish choosing that's contrary to God. Okay, this is all headed toward you and me and what God wants for us and what he wants for humans. It's interesting that this angelic guardian was placed at the gate, the entrance of Eden. And I don't know what you think of angels. We're, we have enough description in, in the Bible to know that angelic beings really had two primary roles. One was being a messenger, conveying a message at various times. And the other was this, I mean, the best image I can kind of put in front of us is like gladiator type warrior kind of being. Like, you know, I don't know if it's appropriate to talk about being ripped and, you know, like, like there's no gym on earth that would actually kind of create this. Like just this beastly angelic being that's protective. That's what we're talking about here, this cherubim. Now Luke begins. I'm going to go from the beginning of the Old Testament. I'm going to finish with this focus in Luke. Luke begins in an interesting way, in Luke 2. And I'm going to read from my favorite part of the Christmas story here for a moment. And if this all just seems random, stay with me. This is all going towards something that I was journaling in December, and I almost changed our Christmas series. Like in the middle of the series, I almost changed it and just walked in and did a different message, and I, I, I'm proud of myself. So it, it's starting to come out of me here today. Um, just, a, just a couple months later. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now this is the telling of the good news. What did Mark say about the good news? Mark says the good news of Jesus' arrival is the time has come. The two worlds are going to begin coming back together. We're moving back toward Eden. All who will listen, all who will accept this good news. All who will recognize there's no law or religious rule that you can just obey to have eternal life. Eternal life, life ultimately in Eden, the way God intended it, is when you accept the virtue of God, that you love him with everything, all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. If you devote your life to loving God with your resources and your relational currency, you give your future to God. Every part of your life is devoted to him developing you and you walking out his plan. Well, then you are 
closer than you think to the good that you crave, the better that you crave. In fact, the time has come. It's here. It's arrived. All right, so Luke's telling begins with shepherds. And one of the reasons this is my favorite part of the Christmas story is that the shepherds, and if you've been here the last few years or if you've known me longer than that, you've probably heard me say this, the shepherds are the bottom of the socioeconomic class system, so to speak. I mean, you can't get lower than shepherds. These are people who don't bathe for weeks at a time. They're people that live with animals that smell terrible. They live out in fields. They, they're not even sheltered in homes. And we don't even know these shepherds' names. And they're the first people Jesus approaches. God comes to this guy. It's not kings or princes. If I'm writing scripture, if I'm reading the Bible for the first time, I'm expecting the announcement of God's arrival comes to the palace or the capital city or the influencers of the day. I'm not thinking the announcement begins with shepherds, nameless shepherds. And every Christmas, year after year, this, I get to Luke chapter 2. This gets me so excited. And so the good news is told to them. Verse 15, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So now the shepherds are image bearers. They're actually sharing the good news in their little sphere of the universe, their little world. They're telling. We don't know how to explain it. This baby has arrived. We believe it's the Messiah. He's come to rescue us. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. So here's what's interesting, and then here's where I'm going to try to tie this together. I have read this story so many times. I mean, I want to say 100 times, maybe 150 times, this, the, the, the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. And the reason I almost, like in early December, just change gears quickly and just blurted this out on a Sunday morning, I was so excited, like I'd never seen this. In all the times I'd read Luke chapter 2 in the Christmas story, I'd never seen this. And one morning, I'm just like writing this down like, wow, hello, the clue phone's been ringing for years and I'm just now answering it. I just didn't see this. I had never noticed, not once, that the same created being that stood guard at the entrance of Eden and said, humans, you've forfeited Life with God, all the good you were made for, all the good you craved that would never end. Replicating life, imaging him, which is your, by the way, it's, it's your deepest longing. And I know that about you because I've learned it about me and it's the story of scripture and I believe it for all people. As much as you crave a good retirement and health in many years and just peace and happiness, you crave nothing deeper in your soul and in your DNA than imaging God. This was ultimately why you were created, to be the reflection of God's character and love and good. And the being that stood guard to say, you forfeited. 
You tried to take control. You tried to place yourself in the seat of creator. Life will never work that way. And so we're banished from the garden. This being, these beings, these cherubim, it's plural. Cherub is, is one. Cherubim, we don't know if it's two or three or five. We don't know. These cherubim guard the way where we can't reconnect with God. We can't step back into that good. Are the same creatures, the same beings in Luke chapter 2 who announce to the shepherds the good news. Good tidings for all people. The time has come, as Mark would say. God is reconnecting human space and his space. Eden is coming back. I am reconstructing the human. Before you step into paradise and just have life and all of its creative grandeur, as we all crave, I'm going to begin a construction process in the human soul. And that will ultimately, eventually lead to us humans living in Eden again. Listen, listen to the story. Luke 2, I, I skipped the part of the, of the angels the first time I read it. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch of their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The being that we're told in Genesis 3 is set to prevent us from re-entering Eden where we live in perpetuous separation from God. That being is now announcing. The angel said to them that, you know, they're terrified. Like, what is this? Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts. Now, let me pause here. This kind of gets into some geeky Bible language. The Greek here, the Greek wording describing a great company and heavenly host, Bible scholars tells us this probably is in the hundreds of thousands, if not crossing a million angels. That's what heavenly host and great company means. Whereas in the Old Testament, cherubim probably, it's plural, probably means several, two or three or four angelic beings. The sky breaks open and possibly a million or more angels are praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests in all the skies and everywhere on the land. May God be praised. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem, of course. This, this juxtaposed image of this being that is to say you're separated. You can't walk in life. You're going to know death. You're going to know pain. You're going to know heartache. You're going to see humans do awful things to one another. This being represents that. You're separated from the very thing that you crave and you'll never stop craving it is now the being, except many more of them, announcing the time has come to reunite humans back to Eden. 
And I don't know, maybe you're sitting there like, interesting. Yeah. That's, uh, for me, I was just like, I was excited. I was, it was like, a, I don't know, Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning. I wanted to call somebody. Amy was working. I just wanted to like tell somebody. I'm going to tell them on Sunday morning. I'm going to change the Christmas series. And I'm just, that's, that's the headspace I was in. I was just so excited. Like, man, things of scripture just keep clicking. You know, as much as I read it, it's like, ah, oh, this was intentional. God's giving us this imagery. And I was telling Anike this this week. Lou and Anike and I, we, we, we had some time. I, I gave them a preview of this message. And Anike said, well, it's interesting. Cherubim is, is, is plural. It's more than one, but it's, it's not many. Placed at Eden were enough angels to stand guard and prevent us from entering. Maybe two, maybe three. But countless, a great host of angels announced the wait is over. The entry to the garden is opening again. It's like all of God's hosts, everyone was commissioned to that shepherd's field. It was a party. What's being described here, the angels in the sky, at least from our perspective, it looked like a sky tore open. It's like a party has been unleashed outside of the town of Bethlehem because humans are now going to be moving back toward Eden. This is just how close God has come. All right. I said I'd finish in Luke. I want to just go a few chapters later. Luke 23. Um, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And one of the criminals on one side of him is just insulting him and mocking him. Oh, so you thought you were God. Oh, you thought you were the rescuer. Look at you now. You know, just, just in his final minutes, this criminal is mocking Jesus. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has nothing, done nothing wrong. There's something here at the end of verse 41 where this criminal recognizes the purity of Jesus. We don't know how much knowledge he has of Jesus. We don't know if he heard him taught in the past. We just know that he sees purity in Jesus. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So this criminal also recognizes nothing on earth and no one I've ever met can reunite me. To what I crave, the good and the better and the eternal life that I want, but I know this man can. Otherwise, you wouldn't say this in your final minutes, having been executed in your, your near death. There's something in his faith. He didn't go to church for years. We don't read that he went to the synagogue over and over and over. We just know that in this moment, he recognizes there's, there's something that can give me life forever there's something that can connect me to eden and it's this man jesus and so he says jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and jesus answered him truly i tell you today you will be with me in paradise you're about to die physically but you are about to be with me in paradise what the human soul longs for Whatever, however it plays out in our paradigm the, the tahiti beach is paradise yes i think that's part of the imagery Humans treating humans, replicating the image and character of God, how we can conceive paradise 
you're going to be with me there today. There's no long description of all the good deeds he's done. He earned his way to God. All we know is that he recognizes Jesus is the source of life. He's the tree of life. In Eden, the tree of life is the symbolic source of life. Jesus is actually it. He's the source of life. Here's a just kind of a nerd thought here. In English, our word is paradise. In Greek, the word is paradisos. And in Hebrew, the word is gone. They mean paradise. I'm sorry, paradise means garden. I don't know how I went so many years. I just learned this a couple years ago. I, I went through seminary. I never heard a Bible scholar teach this or write about it. Our English word paradise is directly translated from the Greek and the Hebrew garden. When I was a kid, we went to the Outer Banks, to the beach, and for some reason I'll never be able to explain, my parents decided to skip the beach one day, the waves, the boogie boarding, just, and go to the Elizabethan Gardens. It's exactly across the sound of Albemarle from Nags Head. It, this was one of the most boring days of my life. I can't even tell you. It, it like, it warped me. It, I went through this garden of naked statues and just bushes. And it was just, it, it was like roses. Uh, we just saw some roses. There's more roses. And it was like, I never wanted to see a garden ever again, ever. I, I, I mean, I, I remember as a kid, like, oh, gardens are the worst. And then one day, friends of ours went to France and they came back and they said, our favorite was Versailles, the gardens of Versailles. And they're showing us pictures, and I'm like, dang, that garden's nice. That is a different kind of garden. And then I went hiking in Colorado in the Garden of the Gods, and I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it was just breathtaking, walking through these rocks. These, I mean, that was a different kind of garden. And then a friend went to a basketball game at the Boston Garden. And I was like, I want to go. I want to go to that garden. And I realized there's different gardens. The garden, the boring, dull, there's just some plants in, in the Garden of Eden. There's, there's, there's some water, and we're supposed to just bow and worship. But that's not God's garden. God's garden is the very thing you're craving. The compassion we want to see in people. The unity, someone said, that we really crave. The beauty, perpetual beauty, being part of replicating life. This is Eden. And in God's determination to allow us to be separated, so much so that he stood these gladiator beings at the entrance to say, you're separated. You're trying to be in control. Jesus as our rescuer came, and I mean, it was more than three or four. He sent hundreds of thousands to announce the day has come. Eden is so much closer than you think. We have to decide which tree are we going to eat from. We still have that decision today. I think some of us are trying. We're trying to, we're trying to make work, life work in our own control, our own good, our own abilities. Jesus has always wanted us to just eat from, I mean, at the Last Supper, he breaks the bread. 
and shares the wine and says, eat of me, eat of my body. I mean, from the very beginning, it's been the same message. You're going to find life in one source. And if you choose to center your life around me, you are moving. You're, you're closer than you think. You're stepping into the space of God, God's realm. Jesus, I ask you this morning to help us move us, shape us, God, in a way here where we get up from these seats and we say hi to one another and we, we, maybe we linger here for a few minutes and continue our community here. But as we get in our cars and as we make our way into this week, God, may we deeply absorb this reality that you arrived to reunite us back to you. That we now have the ability to live and walk in your space and that someday you will return and actually physically restore this broken world back to the place of Eden. We clearly see the Garden City in Revelation 20 and 21. God, you care more about the reconstruction of us, the people in this room, the people hearing my voice. You are restoring us. We allow that process. We surrender to your control. We want to eat of the tree of life, the source of life itself. Jesus, when we stumble, when those thoughts or words enter us, God, that uh, can be ugly at times, uh, just remind us of your grace, that you've come to walk with us and carry us and teach us. God, may we become more and more the image bearer that you designed us to be. I pray that as people encounter the community of our church and our growing relationships here, they would just want what we have. They would want in on the love and the community that we have here. So we give you our week. We thank you for the privilege of following you, and thank you for coming to restore us, Jesus. We're blown away with that reality. Amen.